Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Evil Kitten. I'm Mariah Rose. Ooh, Evil Kitten. Yep. That was perfect. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> hey, what's up, Mariah Rose? Well, geez. Uh, since last time we were here, I broke a couple toes. Oh, yeah, you did. Mm-hmm. That was uh, foolish of you. Well, I protected our entire family, so... That's Is fine. that what happened? Yeah. I'm pretty sure... Battled every, some evil. Everybody was asleep and you were just giving the cats food. Mm-hmm. That's the way I remember it. I maybe tripped and kicked a wall or, or battled evil. Okay. Well, we'll go Take with, your pick. Yep. Saved our family for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's new with you? Uh, not much. Working on music. Mm-hmm. Working on some more music and watching interesting movies for this podcast again. Oh, yes. This is a gem. So this one, I'm sure like sometimes when people see an episode and they recognize the title and they grew up with it and they get really excited. Mm -hmm. And then other ones we do, they just go, well, I guess I'll listen to that. Whatever. Those are our true listeners. It's true. And guess what? We appreciate you. Yeah. You, from my mouth to your ears, thank you. Yes, you're sticking with us, and that's because this week is one of, the, one of those films. This week we are talking about a pretty obscure deep cut, but a film that I love and was a first-time watch for you. Oh, for sure. We are talking about the 1987 film Epitaph. <laughs> the family that slays together stays together. Meet the Fultons. Father Forrest, Mother Martha, and darling little Amy. They are the perfect American family with one slight dysfunction. They can't stop killing people. You promised me this wouldn't happen again! The can is led by Martha, a sexy seductress with an insatiable bloodlust. I love my wife. She's a nice woman. She can't help what she does. Dolores Nascar's star-making portrayal of the mad Mama Martha rivals that of Oscar-nominated Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest. Amy isn't going to date anyone. You can't trust men. You know that. The Fultons are the most horrifying depiction of killer kin since Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day. I'm scared! I don't want to go home! Master of Suspense Joseph Murphy's Mommy's Epitaph depicts just how frightening the modern American family can become without proper counseling. Once you see Mommy's Epitaph, you'll never look at your relatives the same way. Mommy's Epitaph. Okay, Epitaph. Well, if that trailer all blown out with the sound doesn't give you some indication, uh, it's an interesting one. Oh, it's fascinating. So this was a first time watch for you, and I'm very excited to get into this with you. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. This was directed by the one and only Joseph Mary, who, according to the trailer, is a master of suspense. I I have no corrections to make. (laughs) Let's talk about Joseph for a second. So this is a City Lights film, and if you are a listener of our podcast, you'll know one of our favorite movies, and definitely one of the my favorite ones that we covered, was a City Lights film called Dance or Die. Oh. I absolutely love this distribution company. Uh, sincerely, not ironically, too. Like, I really do love this distribution company. I like it ironically. I just like it. And 
We have not gone back and dipped into the well of City Lights since Dancer Die, so it seemed like it was time to do that again. Yeah, when you mentioned it was City Lights, you're like, City Lights? Like, everybody knows what City Lights is? And I was like, wait, Dancer Die, which one was that? Was that the one with the kitchen scene? Yeah. If you go back and listen to that episode, you'll know what we're talking about. So, yes. That film is a wild ride, and it is something else, and... It's not a fluke for this distribution company. This film is an equally wild ride. (laughs) They deliver. So if you are newer to the podcast, or if you just haven't heard that episode or whatever, that was a while ago. So I figured what would be nice is a little uh, update on who City Lights were, like Mm -hmm. that company. So City Lights revolves around Joseph Mary, who was the director and writer of of Epitaph, this Mm. gem that we have. But I need to tell you how the Master of Suspense got his start. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I am on pins and needles. Yeah. Well, he actually is originally from Syria. And when he graduated, he was still a teenager. He decided to come to America and start his life. He had $400 in his pocket. And he came over here and didn't know what he was going to do. Well, this was the 80s. That's like a million dollars then. You think so? No. So he got over here and he just started to kind of, you know, get a job, wheel and deal. And within very short amount of time, he already owned several pizza shops, was like the owner of several successful shops in Las Vegas and was making really good money. How do you, there are those people out there in the world. They're like, I've got $8. I'm going to somehow turn it into an empire. This is, this is the story of. Of Joseph, the master of suspense. That's what he did. Wow. So he has all these pizza shops, but he started getting interested in film and stuff like that. And he thought it would be fun to go take an acting class. So he went to an acting class. And while he was there, he met another fellow aspiring actor (laughs) named Richard Munchkin, (laughs) who uh, we'll we'll get to later. Um, Richard Munchkin is another household name for City Lights fans. It's He's one of the, the main guys who contributes. It's very similar to, for, for other listeners of our podcast, we talk a lot about AIP. And AIP had a group of people like David Pryor, Ted Pryor, William Zip, like these people who all, it was basically like a small group of people who just wanted to make movies. And City Lights is the exact same way. There were Three or four guys. Just a little team. Yeah, who just really just wanted to make movies. Joseph is in acting class. He meets Richard, and they just hit it off, and they're like, yeah, we should totally make movies. They both didn't have a clue what they were doing. Perfect. But uh, Joseph said, well, hey, how about I just sell all of my pizza shops, like my empire, basically. We'll take all that money. We'll both move to L.A., and we'll get going. And they did. And I just... You know, the thing about these low-budget distribution companies that I really do admire is 20, 30 years later for podcasters, they're a blast to make fun of and, you know, uh look how bad these are. But to think of how bold you had to be at a time when you had no idea what you're doing, no money, and you just said, screw it, we're all in. Yeah. And managed to not only make like one film, but build an entire distribution company it's some, there's something to that. So I do have yeah. respect for this work ethic and this desire to just fully commit at all costs. And the courage to like sell successful business to just 
go do film? That's crazy. It is totally crazy. So by 1984, they're in L.A. with some money he made from his pizza shops. They're like, let's make a movie. Do you know how? And they looked at each other and said, "Uh, no, I thought you did. And so they didn't have a clue what they were doing. But hey, they were in L.A. Yeah. So... Joseph tracked down a guy named Rick Pepin, who is the other one of the names you would know from City Lights if you, you know, watch their movies. The credits are always filled with like the same four names. It's like one of them writes, one of them directs, one of them, you know, they all produce, one of them films, but it's always the exact same names. And you, each City Lights movie, you basically write them down on a piece of paper, shake up the jar, throw it out on the table, and oh, that's the crew I guess we're working with. But Mm -hmm. it's always in some combination. The reason why they tapped Rick Pepin is because he had a camera. He had a 16 millimeter video camera. So like, well, this guy can can shoot it then. So he kind of became the in-house cinematographer. Of course. Because of that. And these were shot on 16 millimeter. They wouldn't graduate to 35 for quite some time. But Rick comes on board. All three of them make a film. Actually, the first film they ever made was Hollywood in Trouble. And it just was not going anywhere. They could not what? find distribution for it or anything. Somebody along the line told him, well, you need to make something with a little bit more action. You know, have you seen Hollywood in Trouble? No, it's one of the City Lights I don't have. Okay. They were like, okay, well, we need to make action. So they made their first official City Lights film called Mayhem, which I do have. And that's, okay. that's something. And that's what put City Lights out there. And quickly they realized like, well, hey, maybe we should get into horror because now we're in uh, home video, right? Everything's starting to come out direct right. to video by the mid 80s. So they want to get in on it, and they know that horror and crazy action are the two areas. Huge demand, yeah. yeah. So they want to get into horror, and one of the very first ones they decide to, to dive in with is Epitaph. And I'll tell you, if you're going to get into it, hey, just come out swinging. So it's pretty interesting. I'll save the rest of the City Lights story for maybe towards the end of our episode. Oh, you're sprinkling it through. Might as well. So I'm just not talking at the front nonstop. But that's who we're dealing with is this group of people who basically don't have a clue what they're doing, but they all have a a lot of heart and they really want to make movies. So keep that in mind that what makes City Lights so charming to me is I don't think that they were self-aware. I think that they sincerely were giving it their all. I do think the same. And somehow it works. Like, it's really interesting to watch because they're not poking fun at what's happening. They are selling it with full commitment. Yeah. And in doing so, it's incredibly entertaining. Yeah. You can tell that these people don't necessarily have formal training. And that's okay. I think you and I, as lovers of art... You know, we appreciate formal training, but we also appreciate the outsider who says, you know what? I don't need to play by your rules. I'm going to make my own and I'm going to call my movie Epitaph, even there, even if there is no epitaph at any point in the movie. You know what the original title was, too? What? Mommy's Epitaph. What? <laughs> it's in the trailer, but it's really funny because that's what it was called. Yes, yeah, so Joseph, like I said, wrote and directed this. I don't know what the budget was, but I can't imagine it was very much because by the time they get to their later films, they're still really low budget films. For shooting on 16 millimeter, um, it's not bad. I, you know, I thought yeah. that it would. I watch a lot of films from the early 80s that are on 16 millimeter, and they're usually very poorly lit. 
Yeah. A lot of this does take place at night, but I can still see everything in this film. Yeah, there weren't too many that were lost to the darkness, which is so common, especially in the early 80s. Yeah, and considering this is one of their first films, it's kind of surprising that it's not... Like, it's not horrible. No, it's maybe not brilliant editing, but it's... (laughs) And they were resourceful, as we will get to. They were very resourceful. When they had limited sets, they worked within their means. They are very resourceful. And I think you'll notice that throughout all of the City Lights films. They usually either take place in L.A. or Las Vegas. It's like between the two locations. And then they'll just make the most of the sets that they have. Mm -hmm. And in, in this case, I actually think the set is one of the stars of the film. Yeah. I, what did you think of this house? I thought the house was great. Honestly, I would move in yesterday if I could. Yeah, I would probably clean it first. Well, we know there's a rat problem. <laughs> there is definitely. Well, we'll get to the rat problem yeah, later. Yeah. And I have already seen this film. So I, when you actually chose it, because uh, how we usually pick the movie for the week is I pull a bunch of films and I set them in front of you and then you go through and decide which one you're in the mood to watch. And this was the dark horse. I thought you would for sure pass this one up until well, until you knew who was working with it. There's that. And also you you put out all of the films and I feel like you chose a couple that you knew I would not be interested in. And then you pointed your finger at Epitaph and tapped it three times. And I was like, is that a secret message that he really wants us to do this? So you're suggesting that I kind of stack the deck? I feel confident. In my favor? I feel confident that's what you're doing. So you would watch Epitaph and then we would discuss it on the podcast? I'm on to you. How dare you? (laughs) I do declare. (laughs) Okay, so let's dive in. We have a family. This family consists of a mother and a father, Martha and Forrest, their daughter, Amy, and the mother of the husband, yes. Forrest, her name is Virginia. Yes, it is Virginia. Okay, so they're arriving at a house and they just pull up in their car onto the lawn of this house, which <laughs> troubles me to no end throughout this whole thing. As we live in the desert, I'm like, don't drive on the grass, it's precious. Yeah. Uh, it was not filmed in the desert, but whatever. I do like the idea of... Movies starting with families moving to a house. Yeah, and they kind of drop us in the middle of a, like, situation. Because we, in that little intro, they do effectively communicate that they've been moving a lot. And this is supposed to be the last move. So there's a reason, but it's not clear. But you get that it's not a good reason, just from their little intro. Yeah, let's talk about the characters real quick before we even get into what happens. So, uh, the dad... Kind of your average, like, just working class dad trying to Mm -hmm. take care of his family, willing to do whatever it takes to keep this family together. Just like every other dad. He's got a mustache. The mother, she reminded me a lot of of Catherine from Twin Peaks. That... You, not so much me, beyond just the makeup stylings. Really? You didn't think her acting did? No... She... I don't know. I feel like she could have been yelling at Ben Horn the entire time. You you said that as we were watching it, and I just kind of nodded, but I didn't see it. I feel like the acting quality is maybe on different levels, but okay. 
Okay. I wasn't alone. When I was looking into this film, several reviews were like, she reminds me of Catherine from Twin Peaks. Wild. Yeah. And even the way she's like dressed and her makeup and everything. But I feel the makeup. She is. She's more of like a mommy dearest type character. Okay. That's what I would, you know, that type of character. A little unhinged. Right away you get that. And then we get the daughter. Amy. Who's basically like the star of the show. She's just like a pretty teen girl. Yeah. She's... Um, straightforward, pretty simple. Preppy. Doesn't want to live a complicated life, but is thrown in the middle of one. Seems sheltered, for sure. And the grandma, who is, <laughs> I would say, she extends beyond the realm of definition. Yeah. She looks like a normal grandma, but everything about her is bonkers. I love the grandma. I just love old people acting in low budget movies. You are delighted by I'm delighted by like all grandmas in movies for some reason. (laughs) I mean seriously like all the way to Splatter Farm. I mean I just anybody who puts their grandma in a movie and then the grandma's not only willing to say yes but then commit to the lines Mm -hmm. is so incredibly endearing and charming. And this grandma Virginia is quite the character. Yeah. I really enjoyed her performance in this. I, I honestly am struggling to even define this character. Like, she's <laughs> sometimes seems super aware, and other times seems like she's struggling with dementia. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And maybe that's what dementia is. Or, yeah, maybe, or maybe she's just really leaning into the old character a lot, and... And wants to like go rogue on a few scenes and be like, oh, I would think that this character would actually be more like this. I actually really look forward to deep, deep old age where I can do that, where I can just kind of pretend. Know, you know what? I'm feeling super old today. I'm just going to like phone it in. Yeah, that's basically what happens like when I go to the post office. I'll be trying to cross the road and an old man will just cut me off and not park in the parking spot, just kind of by the curb somewhere, give me the I don't care and get out, yeah. go check his mailbox, get back in and drive off. And I'm like, wow, he didn't even have to follow any traffic rules. He just made his own at this age. You know it's pretty what? nice. It's nice. And that reminds me today, I was trying to back out of a parking space and there was this group of old women behind me. And one of them goes, oh, and points like that my lights are on to reverse. And I was like waiting patiently. And they all looked. But there's a camera on the back of my, uh, you know, on the back of the car. And so I can see them all. And they're like, look, oh, we should move. But they didn't move. <laughs> it was minutes of them like spinning in circles, talking to each other about moving. I was like, are they messing with me? What's happening? Sometimes I suspect old people do mess with people like intentionally. I know I will when I'm that age. Absolutely. I'll mess with people. Yeah. I feel like you're already kind of doing it. I'm also kind of bummed that those rear cameras that you have in vehicles now that you can't screen cap them like your phone. Because I feel like that fisheye lens with old people looking in it would be a great album cover. Yeah, I feel like Tesla's you probably can. Yeah, uh, we should maybe market that. Okay. We Let's thought do of it. it. You heard it here first. It's ours. TM. Trademark. <laughs> it's ours. <laughs> okay, I think that's our. Oh, it was going to be the core cast, but there's a. Oh, a little bonus. A little bonus that runs into scene that nobody was expecting. Okay, so the family's out front of the house. They're discussing their house, and they're talking about how old it is and how it was built in like 1900, which is 
bonks to me because you know in america we're like whoa that's old it's like 100 years old Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have even been that at that point in time so you know all of europe just roll your eyes collectively as you see that but they're in the front talking about this disgusting old house which is actually quite beautiful and out of nowhere a white like i don't know it's like a pomeranian or a (laughs) skipper key comes running up and they're like can we keep it just some random dog, and they're like, mm-hmm, what should we name it? And they all agree that Bear is the best name for this dog they just met. No question. Why? Perfect name. What is the point of this dog? I don't know. It's but, not, like, symbolic of anything. But Bear is the ultimate cliffhanger of this movie, and we'll get to it. Yeah, it's really weird. The tone of this film is so hard to explain, And I'm realizing that I'm really drawn to this specific type of tone, which is in a lot of City Lights films, but it's in a lot of other types of films. Like, we did Appointment with Fear. Mm -hmm. That I could see Heather from Appointment with Fear being in this film and fitting right in. Like, being Amy's friend at school. I could definitely see that. The pacing and the tone is Mm -hmm. really off, but somehow... It's, like, entrancing. Okay, so we've met the family. We've met the all-important bear, which I actually have a theory that bear was just somebody's dog that ran on set, and they're like, just go with it. Just go with it. <laughs> yeah, and it was probably, like, like the director's live. dog. He's like, yeah. crap. They're just like, call him bear, and he'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> so they start settling into the house, and immediately, mom is hitting the sauce. They're moving into their house, and... I do like that the dad has implied that they had to move in a rush, but they also alluded to the fact that movers moved them. If you're, like, moving on the sly, why would you hire movers? That's a real paper trail, but... There was also a weird scene where they said, let's go in and see if the movers set up our rooms. Yep. I've never... Is that a thing? Like, will movers actually unpack each box and put together your bedding? I am sure there are movers like that. Really? Yes. That's insane to me. I would pay top dollar. After our last move, when I remember, because we were moving in August to New Mexico, I remember just being completely human sweat as I was carrying stuff. And I thought, I will pay any dollar amount that I could possibly afford to never do this again. I just think it's one thing to have, it would be cool to have people move like the dresser into the right room, but to say now go through the box, find the one that's marked uh, dad's clothes and open it up. And then the top two drawers, fold them neatly and put them in there because when they move in, there are no boxes. uh, Yeah. This house is completely moved in. I really liked that a lot. I would love that. I think he has a lot of money. Yeah. I don't know what the story is, but mama's drinking and dad's feeling frisky Forrest. That was weird. He just kind of like begging her. She says she wants to have a sandwich or something. And he's like, no, no, make love to me instead. Here are your choices. Humping or a sandwich. And she's like. She's all for the sandwich. She's like, "Uh, nope. She kisses him. And then she's like, bye, I'm going to go have my sandwich. (laughs) She's got her priorities straight. But that kiss is the actual worst. Oh, yeah. It's really awkward. Ugh. It haunts my dreams. I just feel sick even thinking about it. There was another movie we watched where the two people had no clue how to connect their mouths at all. And it was really awkward to watch. It was like watching, like, if you told people at age 12, we're going to film you kissing. And they're like, 
I don't know what to do. It reminds me of taking two mannequins and pretending that they're kissing. Just shoving their, just shoving their head together. at each other and like nothing connects properly. Yes. That's what it felt like. And while that's going on, we have the weirdest scene ever. So the daughter, Amy, is sitting in the dark in her new bedroom. She's just like looking out the window in the dark and grandma comes up. Virginia, our favorite character, offers her a cookie and Amy's like, uh, gross, I saw a rat in the kitchen. And Grandma just shrugs it off. Shrugs it off. <laughs> yeah. And I believe that there was a, a rat in that kitchen. Oh, yeah. That it was, was a gross, gross kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> that whole house is gross. The carpet. It's just like, ugh. This whole scene is really weird. And then it does a pan out from outside, <laughs> yeah. looking in, like, of her bedroom window with the grandmother and the granddaughter. And they're backlit, but they're in the dark. Yep. And all of a sudden, all the lights in the room are on to backlit light them. It's just, I don't know. I, they meant well. They really did mean well. You know what I do like, too, about uh, talking about the tone? It's got this very slow. It's not, it doesn't drag and it's not boring. It just has slow pacing. It's yeah. quiet a lot of the time. And there's a lot of crossfades, like slow yeah. crossfades into scenes. And it's just, it's got this kind of, like I said, like a hypnotic kind of feel to it where... It's just strange. You're like bleeding one day into the next. And as we find out, uh, this goes over the course of a significant amount of time. It's very unclear. Is this a week or is this like nine years? Well, we know it's at least two weeks, but... It's a long time, but it it's like at one point you're like, are they going to show every single day? Yeah, <laughs> every minute of every day. I But I do like it. It's just, it does have these really slow scenes. And this is one of them after she offers the cookie. Is it like pans outside and then just kind of slowly fades away yeah and then the next day at breakfast the whole family is in their perfectly moved in house around the table and this is only important because it gives us our first glimpse of the mother-daughter relationship which is i think what the intention of this whole movie was was that mother-daughter tension mm-hmm. because uh, martha is like having a drink first thing in the morning while amy's getting ready for her first day of school and she has a normal relate amy has a normal relationship with her dad and with her grandma but the mom is like this weird tyrant just drinking yeah she's completely unhinged and we know that right away and like you mentioned earlier i do like that they set this plot up really fast that something is wrong with mom (laughs) yeah yeah she's drinking but she's also weird and even in the like romantic i i mean we're playing fast and loose with the word romantic (laughs) but the scene the night before it was like we're not gonna do this anymore we're here things are gonna be different so we yeah we have a sense that something has happened and the whole family is aware and also mom is the heart of it so of whatever it is it doesn't take long in this movie to find out what the problem is no so amy goes to school and the painter is supposed to arrive and paint the house yeah i like this painter he's a fun guy he is yeah (laughs) so some choice lines in in this movie he comes in and he's painting weirdly over like a flower mural in a bedroom with a brown carpet yes which troubles my soul and mom comes in she's feeling sexy she has a nightgown which is very important to this (laughs) (laughs) incredibly important to this movie yeah like anytime she's got a nightgown on you You better watch out yeah something's about to go down she's got a nightgown and a glass of wine and she starts laying it on thick and his response is so funny because she's like, 
you know, hitting on him. And then he says he has a, he has a girlfriend or a yeah. wife or something. And she goes on about like, is she is uh, beautiful as me? And his response is, eh, she's, she's okay. She's, she's all right. Fine. I mean, he's not going to cheat. He's like, no thanks. Yeah. And she gets super pissed and, is, and turns the top, you know, the table on, on him. Like, oh, you thought I was hitting on you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And he calls her on it. He calls her like a. An what? old bag. A horny old bag, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes off. And and then we get the first, like, real great scene. Remember, this is a horror movie. Yeah. And we get this great scene of her running in, in pure rage with a butcher knife. Is she mad at being rebuffed? Or is yeah. she mad at being called an old bag? Or is it the combo? I think she looks for situations to be able to justify. She just wants to be mad. Killing, yeah, because she stabs him to death, or, hmm. or does <laughs> or does she? She, she hmm. stabs him, which is a, a really fun scene. I do like that. There's <laughs> there's good gore in this. There's blood. You know, it it is definitely like checks all the boxes. She goes to town on him, and then Dad comes home, Forrest, and he's like, "Oh man, darn it." Darn it, Martha. Now I got to bury another one. And he goes, what's the proper tool for burial? A pickaxe, like a miner. He goes out into his lush yard and uses a pickaxe to dig a grave. Why? Can you just stop and imagine how long it would take to dig a human grave with a pickaxe? That tiny little tip end. That's what you're going to pull the dirt out with. It's like an inch at a time. It would be like trying to empty a swimming pool with a teaspoon. Exactly. It it would take forever. But maybe that's the point. Here's my theory. Forrest doesn't like burying bodies. And he thinks if I take a really long time to dig a grave, she can't do another one until I'm done. Oh, interesting. So we have the setup now, though, for this film Mm -hmm. is mom's crazy and really loves killing people, but not just killing people she has a motive to her killings and that is she likes to put on a sexy nightgown Mm -hmm. she likes to to hit the sauce a little oh yeah then she likes to hit on anybody with penis Mm -hmm. and then accuse them of trying to rape her Mm -hmm. that is the plot of of epitaph yeah (laughs) is that mom is a serial killer who creates these uh, delusions in her head of people trying to sexually assault her so that she can then kill them. And then the dad is like, darn it, did it again, and buries the bodies. And so he buries the bodies, gets rid of the painter truck, and he comes back. And this is like dad's time because mom's going to put out now. <laughs> yeah, it did turn her on. That was really that weird. That was really weird. The more of the most uncomfortable kissing the cinema has ever recorded. She just like goes out of frame. Oh, <laughs> and he makes a face. Oh, it's so <laughs> gross. Let's skip on to meet our favorite fellow, Wayne. Wayne is a high schooler and he is interested in Amy and they start a silly flirtation around a cake. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's a fun character. I actually think he's, this is not a joke. I think he's the best actor in the film. I think so. He really is a natural. Or Virginia. He's really fun. He's, uh, kooky. He opens up with this dumb joke about when she says her name's Amy, he says what his... That's his uncle's name? His uncle's name. And it does not land at all. 
It's so awkward. Oh, keep in mind, we should mention that uh, she was dropped off at school, mm. which is 100% just a parking lot somewhere. Yeah, there is no high school to be seen. So all of the high school scenes are around park cars, like at, outside at we, a park. Yeah, we do eventually, they work their way into probably getting like 30 minutes of shooting at a real school, but... In this scene, definitely not. Are they in a real school at any point? I feel like they're in front of a building. Well, there's all those tables that they're all eating at, remember? There's like all the circle tables. That was when they were playing like tennis at a country club. Oh, it might have been a country club. Yeah. 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 I think they had access to a country club. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's my working theory. So she's starting a flirtation (laughs) with a local boy and it's forbidden. can, Can I just stop and say that we... What is bothering us the most is wondering if this was shot at a real school, not all of Epitaph, like nah. all the rest of this film. Wait, was there another film that we thought was shot at a country club? You're thinking hack lantern Yeah. Remember the whole pool scene yeah, and yeah. everything? That mm-hmm. must have absolutely been a country club. Okay. It so, looked like one. All right. Okay. So maybe country clubs are like open. They're a little loose well, with filming. Well, you can rent them, so that would make sense. Okay. And clearly they had the budget. so let's go back to dad he has buried a corpse he's feeling distraught because he's actually not a psycho and he kind of is though yeah you can't be normal to put up with that yeah but he decides it's time for a psychiatrist enough is enough oh oh, this scene is so good oh (laughs) this is pure gold it starts with him looking at art (laughs) and he, he like it goes out to reveal that the psychiatrist is also a painter. Doesn't he recognize her painting as though she's like an established artist? I think so. This is kind of what... This is dancer die territory for City Lights. Mm-hmm. Like how bizarre this entire psychiatrist scene is when we first meet her is 100% what makes me love this distribution company. Because she says, yeah, I do art. But then she immediately... Uh, well, when we first see her, I should say, it's because the dad says, out of frame, aren't you a little young to be a psychiatrist? And then it cuts to her. It, I would expect to see, like, somebody in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And she's maybe, like, late 50s, early 60s. No, oh, dude, no. it's You're definitely, look at her face. She's probably in her 30s. But no, she, she's not. Yeah, she just. Oh, you're thinking 80s, 30s. Yeah, it's which 80s, by 30s. like um, when you take into account uh, inflation now, eighties thirties is like the sixties of today. Yeah, but if you look at her face, she's not that old. She she's just definitely looks. looks she does not look as young as he implied. Eighties thirties, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I. It makes me laugh. And then she immediately goes back at him and says, uh, "What is it like? Are you flirting with me? Are you yeah. hitting on me?" Ugh. It's just so weird. This whole exchange is hilarious. Super awkward. And he's like, uh, my wife hasn't been raped, but she thinks all men want to rape her. And she's like, I can't really help her, but I can help you. That's kind of what she offers. And he's like, uh, she has this thing about nightgowns. And that's <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, he asks her if she'll come to the house because he knows that his wife won't go to her. And she says, absolutely not. Like, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Sorry, find somebody else. By the way, uh, check out my art on the way out. And he leaves. <laughs> and that's it. Like, that's the... 
exchange, but that was the introduction of a very important character in this yeah, film. Yeah, we'll get back to her. Her name is Shirley, by the way. Now, Amy, her relationship or her interest in Wayne has begun to increase, but mom is like super not chill with it. And she's like, you can't go see a movie with him. No chance. And Amy's like upset and goes upstairs to like call Wayne and tell him I can't like go on a date with you or whatever. And at first I thought this was like a vision of the painter that she had, but it's actually the dead painter wasn't actually dead and he's in her bedroom attacking her. I really liked this scene actually because in every other movie like this, it would have just been the ghost. Yeah. Or a vision or something. The fact that they wrote into the script, he dug himself out of his own grave Mm -hmm. after being stabbed multiple times, came up looking like a painter on the battlefield of a civil war. Like he's covered (laughs) in dirt and he's staring at her and then moans and comes at her. And that it turns out to be real. He really was like alive. Of course, he's immediately killed again because she shoots him and not Amy. No, the mom. Yeah. Shoots him and pushes him out the window. But I kind of appreciated this scene because it was so out of left field that they went that route. I just would have never called that. It was crazy. Yeah. He, so he dug himself out, came in, attacked, and then kind of like ran away. So Amy screams and the dad's like, what? And I'll go check out my grave. So he grabs his pickaxe and a lantern to, like, double check that the grave hasn't been dug up because he doesn't really believe Mm -hmm. that the painter's there. And he goes out and the painter kills him. Well, he does a Scooby-Doo moment. Let's talk about that. Because the dad has... There is a scene that is straight out of Scooby-Doo. He's walking in the dark with a lantern, like an old miner, mm-hmm. and a pickaxe wandering <laughs> in the dark. It is <laughs> the pickaxe. so awesome. The pickaxe is like the weapon of the movie. And then he gets killed, yes. And it's kind of sad. I didn't see the dad dying right yeah. away. Well, it's kind of sad, but also just like let your mind settle on... Th- the kissing scene and you're okay to let him go but the mom doesn't know that because he comes back to kill the rest of the family and that's when the mom shoots him and the painter yes and falls out the window and all that but he had already killed the dad and so everybody's devastated now because it backfired on the mom this was an interesting twist too was the mom intentionally only gave him minor wounds knowing that he would dig himself out so that she could no she says that she says that she set that up. No, because she said she in her dialogue, she's like, I wasn't sure you were dead, but I figured you would have asphyxiated under the ground. So she thought he was dead. She was like pretty sure. I thought that she was messing with him and wanted him to not be dead by the time he was buried. I think that she was kind of like, whatever, I figured you'd die anyway. Okay. Well, either way, it was pretty morbid. Yeah, it was but she doesn't know, and then they all find out the next day, and it's really weird. Yeah. The, the dad dying changes the entire tone of this film, because up until this point, it's moving pretty quick. There's a lot happening. It's extremely entertaining with all the ridiculous scenes, and then it just kind of hits a very serious note. Yeah. Where it's like a family struggling to piece together their lives because the dad was caught up in all this and And they can't call for help it's really weird yeah and he is clearly the one who's been holding the family together like 
cleaning up after mom's mess. And the next morning, Amy's like, do I have to go to school? (laughs) That is pretty funny. It's weird. Yeah. And they had to bury him, of course. Yeah. But it's weird. This whole second act of the film is different than the first and third. First and third have a lot going on. But the second is just character building and grief and the boyfriend learning how to like help her out because he's realizing that her mom's oppressive it's it's really not it's not a horror movie in the second act at all it's like a drama well yeah it's it's weird it's like three separate little mini films yeah so yeah the next day amy is sad obviously her father is dead and her mom is like reading a magazine and grandma's praying so that kind of gives you the full scope of that family dynamic and there's a little scene up somewhere around there where they're talking about what they should do. Like, should they turn her in or what? And the grandma, so the mother of the killed, murdered dad, is like, well, I don't want to see her locked up. And that's the entirety of the logic behind this whole family not turning her in, is they don't want their mother to be locked up. That's it. It is a weird thing, too, because that happens with Amy throughout the film. She's very... She's aware that her mom's crazy, but she, like, won't do anything to stop it. Mm -hmm. She just keeps going along with it. And in the second act is when we get the introduction of the psychiatrist infiltrating the family like all psychiatrists are supposed to do. Yeah, she arrives. She's like, I'm your neighbor. We're going to picnic together. Grandma She walks in on, like, a barbecue, right? Well, Grandma and... And the mother are, like, eating or making food outside. They're they're outside enjoying the afternoon regardless. Amy's at school. And the psychiatrist is like, guess who has steaks? And they start grilling steaks. But it's on one of those, like, little tiny grills you would get if you lived in an apartment. Mm-hmm. The shot of it grilling steaks is it's, like, wobbling. And you're like, no steak would ever cook on that, says a vegan. Um, it's just the weirdest weirdest situation well it gets significantly weirder in this scene because they pour out the wine (laughs) this is the moment i'm not gonna lie this is when it gets the most did somebody put you know a drop of acid into our drinks as we were watching this because i it's just i remember the first time i saw this being totally confused by the scene is that she's now there cooking steaks for people she just met Lying, by the way. She's pretending to be somebody she's not. Yeah, she doesn't reveal she's a psychiatrist. And they start drinking wine, and they decide to start uh, toasting to things. And what they settle on is toasting to salad. Yeah, Grandma made a salad, and they toast. They're like, and Virginia made a salad. Cheers! What do you think of this scene? This is... You know, Dance or Die, the scene with the fish tank and the outside picnic? Oh, yeah, for sure. This is it for this movie. Yeah. Where it's just like, what? None of this makes sense. Why is this happening? We've entered crazy town. It's so weird. You know, there's a lot of these scenes in all those movies. So to go back to City Lights real quick, just because this is the quality that you get when you watch these movies is Uh people toasting to salad. That is what happens in a City Lights film. There's so many good ones. There's uh, Death by Dialogue. There's The Newly Dead. Death by Dialogue? Hollow Gate. There's like all these great ones that they did. And this is indicative of the type of 
writing that goes into this is like part of it feels natural in a way that if you've been at a party, people just say and do weird things. Because sometimes in a film, what bothers me is that everybody's always got the right response. Everybody's witty. Everybody yeah. looks well, you know, the right way. I could see somebody in a real situation being nervous and saying, what should we toast to? And an old lady going, salad. And then they all laugh and they <laughs> toast a salad. So there's something oh. that I love about this quality of film. It resonates deeply with me. It actually reminds me of the first time I really talked to you. We were at a party, and you were there with your group of friends, and I came with my group of friends, and I said my first real cool words to you. I was like, what am I going to say to this cool dude? And what did I say? I said, does it bother you? You're so short. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, because I'm real tall. Yeah, I'm average height. I'm not short. You're just way above average for a woman. You're four foot two. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a hobbit. No, but uh, it's that same idea where people just say the weirdest thing and like you think, ah, I should say something really clever here. But no, instead, I'm going to toast salad or ask you about your height. Yeah, it's really bizarre. And so this whole scene just is really uh, fun. It's a fun scene. Long story short is that the psychiatrist works her way into the family. Yeah, Amy like becomes like she arrives and they immediately hit it off. And Amy is like eager for a confidant. So Shirley becomes her confidant. But also the mom, Martha, decides she's her best friend. Yeah. And they're going to go out on shopping spree. Yes. They go to the mall and it's at the mall and they're weird shopping. What is this scene? Like, why are they shopping? I don't know, but Mm -hmm. they're sitting at a table and a certain someone decides to visit them. And that's where we have this week's fun fact. Fun fact. Okay, well, it's not much of a fun fact if you just use IMDb, but it's not under the the fun facts section. It's under just the normal credit section. The guy who walks up and outs her as being the psychiatrist, who is quite the character. He's got like a bright red mullet. Just like you. No, just like you. What are you talking about? And a bright red mustache. And he's got a baby face. He looks... He just looks like a character. He's soft. There's a lot of white. He's one of those people that he didn't say anything and you chuckle when he enters the scene. <laughs> he's got a, he's got that star quality. Um, he walks in. <laughs> he did, didn't I? And his name is Warren. That's unkind. And he says hi to the doctor and then leaves. And Warren is played by none other than Richard Munchkin, the director of Dance or Die. His name is Munchkin. He looks like a Munchkin, too. He looks like he's straight out of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> like a welcome you. I'm to not Munchkin joking. There. If you just put a little green outfit on that guy. It's so insane. The mullet, just the softness of the whole thing. The ability to only be on screen for like 13 seconds and completely steal the show is true star power. Oh, I so I applaud you. I I toast Richard Munchkin. Oh, me too. Cheers, Cheers. Munchkin. 
So while this is happening, also I need to say, first of all, I'm sad that malls are dying because yes. that mall was amazing. It was a really cool mall. I hate shopping, but I love a good people watching and the mall is a great place for it or yeah. it once was not so much anymore but that mall was a beautiful masterpiece and at the end of the world i will seek it out and make it my bunker i'm sure it's just demolished by now Shh. but i uh, so he outs her martha now knows that she's something's not right something's not settling right she does it's not fully out she's just kind of confused and she's like sorting the facts in her head but she's also starting to get at the same time jealous of the relationship that she's developing the psychiatrist developing with amy because Mm -hmm. it's almost like a second mom like she's like the nice one and this is kind of where i was like how much time what are what's the timeline here like what's going on well because to the average person it seems like it's only been a day or two but we know it's been at least two weeks later. She's just been part of the family now, just coming over. Like in real deep, like she's got nothing else going on. She really, And you know what's funny is, it was the husband that had hired her. So she's just doing this with the hope that she's either A, going to get paid at some point. We'll get to B, it. Or B, she just loves doing this. We'll get to it. But meanwhile, Amy is learning tennis from Wayne. So their relationship <laughs> is blossoming because... He's also really into soccer. We like we learn really important things about Wayne's sports abilities, and then also a strangely introduced sister. That's like I mean, we're invested in Wayne. Yeah, we're all sure. in with Wayne, and so is Amy. And Wayne is not so good with the history. He reveals that he flunked their history class, and. Amy's like, I'll help you, and kisses him. And this is important because it sort of solidifies the fact that they're in a relationship. But she also kind of rejects him because she's struggling with her mom's, like, overbearing presence in her life. And that's only important because she has to confront her mom, obviously, at some point. But the psychiatrist is the person that she goes to and talks to about all of this relationship stuff. And the mom finally, Martha, finally confronts the psychiatrist, Shirley. And she is not pleased and kind of does this weird regressive behavior with Amy and dresses her like a little baby girl. Yes. She's basically flipping out over everything now. So the mom has this moment in the second act where she's kind of like got a friend now and, you know, maybe she can get past the death of her husband. And then the second Amy... Is going to have a date and, and the doctor's maybe not who she says she is. Martha goes back to what Martha does. Mm-hmm. Hits the sauce, puts on the nightgown and is ready to party. Martha style. Yeah. And at this point, the psychiatrist Shirley decides to come clean. And she reveals that she has been doing uh, essentially... <laughs> undercover psychiatry for two weeks. (laughs) It's awesome. It's so awesome. (laughs) For no pay. It's so small town. Like, I can see this happening for sure. It's got a kind of soap opera vibe to it, doesn't it? Yes. Also, can we trademark undercover psychiatry? Oh, I think we can. I think it's deeply illegal, but let's try. So, uh, Martha does not handle this fact? No. I wouldn't either, though. But she takes this to the next level. (laughs) And this is, I would say this is the kill of Epitaph. Like, this is the 
the one you're going to know if you've seen the film. This is weird, too, because for some reason she breaks back into Martha's house. Well, yeah, she had it coming. That was my opinion, too. It was a little B&E. Yeah, you kind of like, what were you thinking? So she breaks into their house after she's been told, like, never come here again. Yeah, she was warned. And Martha is... I'm going to let her know that she's no longer welcome. She's got her her uh, nightgown on. She Oh, what she does sneak up with the nightgown and knocks her out, ties her up. Uh, she's like in her bra and underwear tied up in the basement. Mm-hmm. And this is this is bananas. So she comes out with a rat. Yeah. Because remember, there was earlier the grandma referenced the rat in the kitchen. We've caught it. Uh, it is a very large, healthy it has been eating very, very well at that house. But Martha says that it hasn't eaten in three weeks. <laughs> I feel like the rat would be dead if it hadn't eaten in three weeks, but no. I, it looks like it hasn't eaten in three minutes, but she rubs it really awkwardly all over <laughs> the psychiatrist. This is so awkward. I, I mean, I'm an animal rights advocate. This troubled me a little bit, but it was clear that the rat survived this situation. She just holds it by the tail and tries to be like... Uh, evil and this rat is not a trained professional and is like why are you rubbing me on somebody and then eventually she puts it in a pot yeah ties the pot around the psychiatrist uh stomach yep so she there's a pot tied around a woman's belly clearly the rat is gone at this point but it's inside yes but we're meant to believe that takes a blowtorch that she had sitting around it's the, but it's not like a full blowtorch. It's like the kind that you would use to in cooking, like a little tiny Whoa. cooking blowtorch. She takes it, she heats up the pot, which means the rat has nowhere to go. Then <laughs> digs its way, and we see it digs its way through the psychiatrist and out the back, and it shows it coming out the back. And this is incredible, incredible kill. I've this never may be seen like, the like of it. I may be like a top 10 kill of all time. It was a very speedy rat. It was very effective. I was hungry. Effective. I hadn't eaten in three weeks. I don't think it ate. I think it just dug right, tunneled right through her. Man, amazing. A, amazing that they did this. B, more amazing that Joseph wrote this mm-hmm. scene. What made him say... We got to kill her. No, there is ancient, like, tortures of people being eaten by rats. That's not new. Okay, but that's not... Martha has just stabbed a painter. That's what she did. Maybe she read an ancient torture book. We learned that she is pretty creative. Yeah. Because she's now, like, lost it. So Martha's gone. She's She's unhidden. She's ready to take everybody out. She's going to lock up Amy for wanting to date. Mm-hmm. So she locks her up in the room where the painter was killed. Well, yeah. So also we need to talk that Virginia, the grandma, kind of disappears for the second act. Like entirely. We don't see her. She comes back because Amy's like, I'm I'm out. I'm going to bounce with Wayne. And grandma's like, I'll help you pack. But also, will you take me with you? First of all, grandma, you're a grown adult. Get yourself out of there and get the daughter out of there. But whatever. That's neither here nor there. And then mom realizes our plan, locks Amy in a room that would be basically like the easiest room to break out of. There, 
It's a window. It's a normal room. It's a window, and also it's like a probably a hollow core door. You could just punch it a couple times, and it would it would open. I feel like a child could kick out that. Okay, door. well, it doesn't matter because she's been locked up so long and starved for so long. Who knows how many days have gone by at this point? It's three. But we do get the the climax of the room lock scene. Which is pretty incredible. So, yeah. So, Amy's been locked up to keep her from going with Wayne. And she doesn't have a toilet. And she's begging for to be let out to go to the bathroom. This is a really important scene, you guys. This is, like, highlights the absolute cruelty of the mother. And also, like, what you would do if you didn't have a bathroom. She leans against the door crying. And then we get a close-up shot. Of her urinating in her sweatpants. And it is... It's just like, bravo. I just want to like stand up and clap. It's Why? really pretty amazing cinema. And then we also get a conversation next, or right around this time, of Martha talking to Virginia. And this is essentially where we get the entire backstory, which... Oh, yeah, I forgot Wait, wait, that. wait, wait, wait. I know, I know where you're going with this. Does it lead to dance or die? She was one of the dancers. Okay, so Martha is talking to Virginia, and she's like, all I wanted was to be a dancer. First of all, I can tell you, she is no dancer, but nor has she at any point listened to music or danced in this entire movie. So her interest in the world of dance is a totally new revelation two-thirds of the way through this movie. Oh, yeah. Completely caught off guard. But she's got a motive. And she couldn't be a dancer because Forrest got her pregnant with Amy. Oh, no. So she had to go on a killing rampage and accuse people of rape because she couldn't dance because she was pregnant. <laughs> Lock solid. I see no problems here. Okay, well, she's also pissed because Grandma uh, got rid of the booze, maybe? She needs booze, so she goes to the store to get more booze. And this is important why I'm mentioning this, because this is the big breakout scene. Grandma's had enough. She can't take her granddaughter peeing herself anymore. And being, um, you know, guilted into her son causing her daughter-in-law to become a serial killer. She's going to break out her granddaughter. So what does she go grab to to break the lock? What would you grab? (laughs) If you could grab The most useful tool. Any tool in the world to break a lock off a door. It's the pickaxe that killed your son. And also bring Bear along. (laughs) Because don't forget... We have a Pomeranian Skipper Key dog here. Yeah, but she doesn't even make it upstairs. She tries to call the police, but Martha comes home. She gets scared. Grandma does. Mm-hmm. And is uh, hiding from her. And Martha surprises her. She's got... Doesn't oh. have a nightgown this time because she just got back from the store. Yeah. But what does she surprise her with? An electric knife. What? Where did that come from? I don't know. And did she have an extension cord? Exactly. Great question. Great question. <laughs> it's so amazing. So she kills her with an electric knife, and that's that. And then Wayne comes around. He's been like calling and coming around, and she's been mom's been blowing him off, but he finally returns. And mom's like, you know what? You know what I need to do here? I need to seduce Wayne. Oh, she does. I love when she comes in with the nightgown. I love that we know that. That's yeah. one of the brilliant parts of this script is that brilliant. they have... It, no, it really is. <clears throat> They've primed us to know that when the nightgown is on, like, it's going to get crazy. Yeah. And it 
it gets completely crazy, like off the rails. Yeah. Because she walks in with a nightgown and a glass of wine. And he rebuffs her advances. So, not to one to uh, take rejection lightly, she fills a container with lighter fluid. And he's like, no thanks. But he also doesn't leave. He's like, I'm going to go sit in your living room and read a magazine instead while I wait for your daughter. So he goes and sits in their weird living room oh, it's reading. Weird. Totally weird. And she's like, I've got this container of lighter fluid. I'm going to pour it on you. She pours it on him, mm-hmm. tries to light him on fire, and he punches her in the face and knocks her out. Totally. <laughs> Which is actually a out. reasonable response given the like circumstances. Yeah. I would say that was a that it's was an okay one. Yeah. I'll, it's appropriate. I'll, I'll say that was okay. And he goes, "Okay, now it's time to move." So he runs looking for Amy. Also, we should mention this is just a like an it's a nicest nice-ish house, although the interior needs some work. But at the top of the stairs, there's like a weird gate. That is really weird. I kind of like it. It's neither here nor there, but why? Also, he makes zero effort to open that door. He just like lightly. Well, he is an athlete. I forgot that. He plays soccer. And tennis. And tennis. So he serves up a whooping on that door and opens it. it, Takes her. They're making their grand escape. This is the end of the film. They're making their grand escape, except. They they run out of the house. They're in the yard, in the yard with a car parked on the lawn. This is so incredible. And they go to get in the car, and Mom pops up out of the back seat with a lit match and tosses it at Wayne, and he bursts into flames, and it's a full Wayne flambe. He just falls onto the grass and dies. He doesn't roll or anything. He just runs around allowing himself to be burned alive. This is the 80s. He knew about stop, drop, and roll. That's all they told us in the 80s. It was so funny. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere and she's laughing and he's burning. Yeah. And Wayne dies. That's it. Like, really, that is a lot of setup, a lot of character development to tug at the heartstrings. I'm sad that Wayne died. He's died and now who has to Dig the grave, but Amy. Amy's digging, <laughs> digging, the grave. digging Wayne's grave. And it goes to a freeze frame, which is fabulous, of Amy like screaming, Mother! And hacking at her mom's neck with a shovel. And I want to also acknowledge here, Amy dug with a shovel. Yes. Well, because Amy's the only smart one of the whole family. Well, I mean, she peed her pants when she could have. She had no choice. She could have kicked out the door. (laughs) She she could have opened the window temporarily, peed out the window, like stuck her butt out the window, and then closed it. She could have peed in the corner. Imagine peeing out the window and being like, if only there was a way to escape. (laughs) (laughs) Or peeing your pants and being like, I wish I didn't have to pee in my pants. I could have squatted in a corner. Well, regardless, we do get the follow up final scene. I really do love this. I, you know what I hate is when you really enjoy a movie and then they blow it at the very, very end. I feel yeah. like this delivers big I time. Thought, I thought the end was Amy going, Mother! With a like shot of her freeze frame hacking at her mom with a shovel, but Which no. would have been disappointing because I would have loved to have seen like her mom's head flying through the, through the sky in slow oh. motion. We don't get that. We nope. get so much more. We get the next day... Amy's dressed up. Like a baby. Like a baby. She's ready to go. She gets in the car and she looks over and says, yes, mother. And her mother's corpse with like her neck cut and everything from the shovel is like propped up in the seat. 
and they talk about which route to take to get to where was it salt lake city yeah <laughs> and and they drive off perfect and that's mother's epitaph <laughs> Ooh. okay i'm dying to know because you're two for two now with city lights what did you think of this one? Oh, this was a winner, even though there was no epitaph. I so good. I do not. Why didn't they call it Mother? I don't know. Well, I, I guess that's... Why didn't they call it the story of Virginia and Bear? Also, we need to say, Bear was not in that car. I don't know what happened to Bear, and I'm still worried. He pulled a real grandma and just kind of disappeared for a while. Oh, he's in the fifth act. Man, this film really is fun. It's really fun. And each time, you'll know too, if you watch it again, every time I watch it, it gets even better. Because once you kind of know what you're in for, Mm -hmm. it just becomes more and more enjoyable. You can watch the details rather than the overall. It's fun. It is such a blast. It's so over the top. It's really short, too. Yeah, so. it is really short. It's not, you know, crazy. It, it, and it moves at a pretty decent pace. I will say, in all honesty, the second act, act does drag a little bit. Because it gets a little dramatic. You get the mall scene, though. Yeah. and Well, and you get the, the psychiatrist infiltrating the family. And that's the rat in the pot. Well, yeah, that comes, like, that's... Without that's her end. getting into the family, we would get no rat scene, so... This is just so much fun. So I'm glad you were willing to watch it. I hope, I know we just completely gave away, the, I mean, that's what we do. We gave away the whole movie, but. Look, so if you're upset that we gave away the plot of this movie, you have had decades, literal decades to watch it. So. Uh, <laughs> Tough stuff. Yep. Yeah, deal with it, bud. <laughs> uh, I highly recommend this. I'd say as far as Laser Graves is concerned, this is a Laser Graves approved film. Oh, for sure. Yeah, this is a good one. (laughs) This is a real winner. Watch it. What's wrong with you? Uh, Okay, well, that's that's Epitaph. Real fun one. Oh, to follow up with City Lights, I was going to tell you. Yeah. So City Lights went on. They made... I don't know. They made a lot. Somebody, $1 billion. Well, no. Somebody said they made 11 films, but they made a lot more than that because I I know all of them. But what happened was that Joseph Mary had another partner in this whole bunch with City Lights. His name was Ron Gilchrist, and they had a falling out by the late 80s. They mm-hmm. just couldn't see eye to eye. So they said, screw it. We're going to leave. So Ron got the rights to all of the City Lights films. And Joseph partnered up with his cinematographer. You remember Rick Pepin, who had the camera? Mm-hmm. And the two of them formed another uh, production company, which was PM. And PM is in the in the tape world, much more popular than City Lights. Like PM is the action kind oh. of uh, dis- distribution company. And PM actually stands for their names because you have uh, P for Pepin, M for Mary. So that's where PM comes from. But Boring. they went on to produce a bunch of... Think of like this style, a little more polished on 35 millimeter and action, like over the top. So that's what PM went on to do. Okay. Uh, and that is the story of <laughs> Joseph Mary and City Lights and Epitaph. And I'm very much looking forward to doing another film down the road but for this week you got this one okay well if you want to follow us you like what you heard you can follow us uh on instagram at laser graves you can check out all of our back episodes at lasergraves.com we're anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast 
Uh, as always, we do this once every two weeks, so we'll be back in two weeks with another one. You know what I think we should do? What? I think we should end on a toast. Yes. Yes. Instead of signing off and saying, see you next week. No. Boring. For all of our listeners, let's all simultaneously, whatever you have in your hand, it would probably be an air glass because nobody would have anything in their hand at the moment. I don't know what you're doing with your life. <laughs> Raise your glass and let's cheers. What do you think we should cheers to? Oh, I've got an idea. Salad! Salad!